Welcome to another episode of Pat and the Fat Man. We like to talk about movies, sports, or whatever else we feel like. I'm Pat. And I'm the Fat Man, otherwise known as Bruce. Otherwise known as Bruce. And today we're <clears throat> continuing our journey through the cult classic Red Dawn. Wolverines! Wolverines! You know, I actually confused one of our listeners because I don't know if you've noticed, but I have a tendency to misspell the name of the movie <laughs> in the titles. <laughs> What, Red Dog? <laughs> no, I think I put Red Drawn for the last one. God, I, I can pull it up like the Big Lebowski. It's like the Brig Lebowski, the Big Lebowski. I can't tell you why I started doing that, but I did. We're doing it so that way nobody else can find these movies. They can only get these movies through us in our audio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Red Drawn Part 1 was the, was the first one. And then for the last part of the movie, I do the actual name of the movie. So, like, The Big Lebowski is The Big Lebowski Part 6. Yep. So, last we left our heroes, they were riding off into the sunset on on brand new horses with two new women. This doesn't sound like the right film, but anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you stopped at certain points, this may get awkward. (laughs) But no, they left the ranch with some new supplies, radios, guns, bullets, things like that, and were given the duty of protecting these two women. And when they got back and were listening to the radio, they heard code talk. And as they're listening, Radio Radio Free Free America. America. The chair is against the wall. The chair is against the wall. Donald Duck has his thumb up his own. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that wasn't the case, but. (laughs) No, I guess not. There used to be, if you have a ham radio, you could tune into what were called number stations. They were called number stations because you tune into the station and it would just be somebody reading numbers. And over and over again. And then it usually be some kind of like identifier at the end, like Yosemite Sam saying something or a duck or some noise or something. And a lot of times the radio stations were identified in the ham radio community by those noises. They're still going on. I mean, if you've got a ham radio license now and you'd find number stations, most likely what they are is code for one-time pads. And what a one-time pad is, it's a code tool. It's a series of lines of directions that can be interpreted a number of different ways depending on what code you get. And so you get the code, you write it down on the one-time pad, it gives you what what your directions are. So this would be like an operative in the field. He'd get the code, figure out what he needs to do, and then tear up the pad. Right. It is an unbreakable code. Like there's no way to break it because it's a one-time use thing. It only goes out once. And unless you have the pad itself, you there's no way you can interpret the code. And you know it, it goes with the code. So it's, it's a very effective, which is why it's still in use today. It's an extremely effective spy tactic, effectively, to give uh, agents in the field, especially in other countries, to give them directions, even though they don't have you know access to other digital means or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. in, even in the modern day and age. That's effectively what you're hearing is that is code being spoken to people who are embedded behind the front lines inside of the communist territory or Russian territory, however you want to term it. So are they're getting orders, basically, or being told about the situation on the front lines, one or the other. <laughs> but for our heroes, it really doesn't mean much because this is the first time they've even heard from the outside world, let alone you know any sort of code talk. <laughs> like they go into town and they're like, oh, okay. Everything's all Russia style here now, (laughs) you know, it's terrible. Like in Russia times. (laughs) (laughs) 
and then um, the girls say, you know, things have changed. And one of those things I'll say about that particular moment, the movie does a really good job of saying that you're entering the new chapter, like fin- like you're en- you're finishing this chapter and entering the next one. Effectively, at this point, you have one of the characters found out his dad died, right? Right. Got killed because he aided gorillas, right? So he finds that out at the Mason. So he's crying right into his friend. You know, you have no reports about some of the other fathers, you have Jed and Matt get to see their father all beat up and, you know, telling them about their mother being gone and that that's the last time they get to cry and, and you know, avenge me. <laughs> avenge me! Avenge me! <laughs> yeah. And then the two girls who are smuggled out and we get a little bit of insight into what happened to them in the next couple of scenes. But, you know, basically they sneaked over to the, the Mason's house over a course of two days, right? So right. everybody is just sort of like... Sitting there staring at the radio, coming to terms with this is how things are now. Mm. We are behind enemy lines. Like they won, right? There is no going home. Like literally for several of them, there's no home to go to. Right. Like if they went there, there would be nobody that they know who were there. And home is not just a house. It's the place where your family is. Right. <laughs> so they're all just sort of trying to come to terms with that. Yep. Like you said, it makes a, an amazing transition. Like, again, somehow the director stumbled into this fantastic <laughs> transition scene for the next phase of the show, which makes sense where we're going with these guys. Right. So then when we fade out into the next scene, Daryl and Danny are running along the side of a mountain ridge and you got binoculars and they see a van coming up the side of the mountain and go, they're coming up <laughs> and you see uh, a poor truck pull up to like a national park sign and three Russians get out. And what it looks like is it's two Russians and one, maybe he's Russian. Maybe he's South American. Can't really tell exactly. Because of the giant black mustache. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the mustache really sells it. <laughs> it really does a great job of confusing you. But from what I can hear, because it's all translated, so they're not speaking English, but it sounds Russian. It definitely doesn't sound Hispanic. <laughs> right. It doesn't sound like Spanish. It doesn't sound like Portuguese. It sounds like Russian. Right. Still not entirely certain whether the guy is like just South American who can speak Russian, which sure yeah, you got these two very stereotypical looking Russian quote unquote guys, and then this other guy who's yeah, <laughs> but who also seems to be someone in charge, or at least the highest ranking official there. <laughs> and it looks like they're just out there like being tourists, you know, they've got binoculars, they're looking around, and the one guy sees the sign and goes, Oh, it's American history, I know it well. And so the, the officer is like, Read it to us. And when he reads it, it's just wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. First, he called it, says it, it says it's a national forest. The guy calls it a battlefield, says that in 1908 there was a peasant uprising, <laughs> which is not what happened. <laughs> And it's just so funny. And then, like, of course, you know, they're taking pictures in front of it. And the officer, again, this is to, I guess, generic character type things. He just starts insulting them, tells them to hurry up to take a picture, and calls him a fool. You can read the sign as he's fake reading it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he's not fake reading it. Maybe he just does not understand English and he's just making it up. Whatever. It's, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, President Roosevelt established the National Forest and it's this certain kind of tree 
that grows here. And, you know, that's pretty much the gist of it. And this guy is making up this story about this peasant uprising and the slaughter <laughs> and the, of the native peoples and this. Right. And the best part is he says it's 1908 when it's clearly written 1905. Yeah. <laughs> and now I know that English may not be his first thing, but numbers are universal. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, almost everybody uses the Arabic numeral system. <laughs> Nobody's using Roman numerals anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at some point someone would go, wait, he said 1908. It says 1905. No, just go with it, man. Just go with it. We don't really care. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I feel like the him being called a fool by the general guy is part of that. Like, ah, this man is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so they're taking pictures and whatnot. The translator, and I put that in air quotes, looks at them and goes, hey, look, I found a Native American uh, bow. <laughs> yeah. And, and immediately the guy's like, oh, yeah, they, they worked in steel, huh? <laughs> like, right. Like, it's not steel. It's, it's, it's melted down from Federalists sabers. <laughs> yeah. And then the guy's like, oh, yeah, they worked in plastic, too. And it's like, it's not plastic, it's bone, you know, <laughs> shine to a sheen. Yeah, I sheen. <laughs> there must be more over here. <laughs> and, of course, we, we got a quick glimpse through all, all this of some of our heroes hiding on the downslope <laughs> underneath rocks. <laughs> yeah. In these very precarious positions. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, I have to ask, like, why are they there? Right. Because... <laughs> theoretically their camping should be pretty far off the beaten path. Like granted they got a truck up there at some point, but surely they figured out that was a bad idea (laughs) (laughs) to, you know, camp near a sign. Right. Wouldn't you go higher and higher, you know, as opposed to lower. (laughs) Right. This whole scene strikes me as somewhat contrived, just in large part because you have no like reference for it. Like you don't know why are they there? Why are the Wolverines that, you know, the future, what will become the Wolverines? Why are they there? Why are the kids there? Right. And of course, the, what we can only see are the two girls, Tony and um, Erica. Yep. So the guy sees, oh, hey, there's another one down here. And he goes stumbling down. And that's when, you know, the rabbit comes out of the hole, basically. Right. Tony, Jennifer Gray slips and, and, and falls. And then, you know, that flushes them out, you know, and Danny's there. And he gets flushed out and they're all running. And the officer doing the only thing that's semi-intelligent, he sets off a warning shot so that way others that might be nearby could hear him. Yeah. And so there becomes a chasing, and all of a sudden, all of our heroes start fleeing into the forest. And then as they're being chased, we see Robert turn behind the tree, like turning back yeah. towards what's coming. Yeah. And then as soon as we see that, then Tony's almost caught by the officer, and Danny fires a bow right the uh, officer's uh, middle of his back. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Shoots him in the bag with a bow. And it's interesting that Danny does it because they have Danny take effectively the first shot, right? Right. So before this point, they're something akin to refugees, right? Mm -hmm. They've been ousted from their homes. They fled into the woods. They're just living in there. They're not causing any problems. They're not doing anything. You know, they get labeled as gorillas because they, you know, took stuff. When they left town, but they're not actually guerrillas. They're not freedom fighters. They're just people scared out in the woods. Danny shoots that bow at that officer in the back. And now the game is on. Well, yeah, <laughs> like, but they're, they're mostly doing this because they don't want to be found. <laughs> right, exactly. But this, this, that's what this scene is really engendering. It's like, okay, 
like they were they were emotionally at the point where okay we don't have anything else to like go back to now but we definitely don't want to go back <laughs> right even if there was this was really bad for us to come back to <laughs> you don't have like jed or Matt or anybody trying to drum up a hey we gotta go and find a way to destroy that that camp and free our parents and you know any of that it's all like they're just okay we're in the woods now i guess and everything's different but this scene sort of changes the whole trajectory of their being. Right. It forces them into violence. So that way they can get comfortable with the idea of violence. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then so, you know, Danny effectively draws first blood by shooting this guy in the back with an arrow. Then you know, there's a scramble. The, the officer gets shot in the back. He's <laughs> so now he's like, this, I'm out of here. Yeah. And then as he's fleeing away, Erica grabs the soldier by or the officer by the, the legs. And Tony just grabs his AK and just starts shooting. Now, it's not a controlled shot. She's just barely hanging on as the thing kicks up in the air and whatnot. So she's just, yeah. you know, pulling the trigger and letting it do its thing. And she ends up killing him. <laughs> yeah. It's close to a point blank. You know, he gets shot probably several times. And, you know, I thought that was actually really well done. Like somebody who's never used that kind of firearm before, like just trying to use it and like how badly that could go. <laughs> right. Especially for a 1980s film, which was always about the absurdity of how well people can use guns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, and he's on shot number 17. <laughs> of his of his pistol that cannot possibly hold 17. Yeah. It's not yet reloaded. <laughs> so I, I thought that was a really, really good portrayal. So like she shoots him. And so now you have multiple gunshots. Right. Uh, gone off. And that's when we go back to the deeper down in the woods and Robert turns and shoots the foot soldier with his sh which is it's a shotgun yeah and then uh, the other two guys start chasing the last guy start putting shots into him that you can't really see so I mean it, first you're like oh he stumbles and falls so they probably hit him but this guy apparently uh, he's made out of slightly tougher stuff he was able to crawl all the way back to his uh, his truck all bloodied and whatnot that's adrenaline for you kids <laughs> adrenaline is a hell of a drug it is a hell of a drug <laughs> if, if you're not shot in a place where you're like immediately going to bleed out or go into shock or you know it's not like your heart or something which is funny because the blood stain on his uniform is like right in his back <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the the soldier makes it back to the truck grabs hold of the radio starts calling for help but it's just sporadic and random and desperate and you don't know if he's actually getting a hold of anybody yeah first person to the truck is uh jed <laughs> With his six shooter. This sort of becomes Jed's moment of truth. And this is sort of the, the part of the horror of war, right? Right. In a lot of modern warfare scenarios, you're shooting people at distance. The way they have modern warfare scenarios designed for training purposes, you're shooting like cutouts of things. And it's all about shooting at the motion and, and identifying targets and, and rapid response. And it's not close up. It's faceless. <laughs> right. It's all designed to take the thought process out of the killing. Because right. the reality is nobody really wants to kill another person. Right. Until you get to a certain terrible point <laughs> in, in, you know, psychological breakdown. And so this is a big moment of truth for, for Jed. He's got this guy, you know, at arm's reach. Right. And he's like, I, I can't let him live, but I really don't want to kill him, but I have to. <laughs> 
and the the Russian guy kind of turns away because he knows what's about to happen. Right. And then you sort you hear the shot ring out. It's that executioner kind of style moment. Yeah. You know the axe is coming, so you're just going to look away. Mm-hmm. And of course, they don't show it, but they focus on Danny, and you hear the gunshot and Danny closing his eyes like, you know, like, oh, shit that happens. <laughs> yeah. So Robert killed a guy. You kind of get this later on in a scene with uh, Matt and Jed where Jed tells Matt, you know, turn your sadness into something else. What he's, he's telling him is to turn it into anger, right? And you can kind of see that starting to take hold in Robert post this scene where he kills after he kills this guy. Danny, on the other hand, is a little bit horrified about what he's done. Whereas Tony doesn't seem to have any problem with right. what she's done. And then you have Jed and Jed is sort of, he's now like completely solidified his leadership role. He's the guy that has to do the really hard thing in the terrible moment. And he did it. Right. He's not just like the oldest and the guy with the truck and the guy, you know, who knows how to hunt and, and the guy who was able to fend off the the politician's son when he tried to beat him up, you know, <laughs> <laughs> during the campfire scene. He's now like, okay, I'm... I'm the guy. And it it shows the trajectory of their individual past as far as like their role in the group as it turns from this sort of refugee group into the Wolverines. Right. So then the next thing we see, it's at night. They're back at camp and Robert is sawing off the end of the shotgun Aardvark standing behind him and he asks him, you know, how did it feel? Robert goes, it felt good. Yeah. Which this is also sort of a turning point that suddenly Robert starts coming into what he's going to be throughout the rest of this. Yeah. His attitude and whatnot, how he's comfortable with the violence and how he's trying to turn his tragedy into something else. And it's just all encompassing. His world has effectively gone from, okay, my parents are gone, so I've got nothing now. Oh, I can cling on to revenge. <laughs> that is something I can make my world about. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, then that's both both what he says, you know, how did it feel? It felt good. And then the fact that he's sitting there sawing off a shotgun, which different theories about how to f- use a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> then it focuses on um, Danny and Jed. And Danny's like, they were people, you know, that we killed. And Robert comes back in and goes, yeah, well, so was my dad. Yeah. Again, Danny's the innocent one. He is the forever innocent person, you know, the idealist, or at least the outspoken one. The one that says things without thinking uh, is the way I kind of think of it. And it's in such a naive way (laughs) that despite what he sees, he's still holding on to the naivete of the world. (laughs) He still wants things to be able to go back to the way they were. Right. (laughs) Unlike everybody else who sort of had that moment where they were kind of mentally moving on, we see that Danny hasn't quite gotten there yet. Right. Even with the events of, you know, killing the officers or whatever, even though he was involved, he doesn't want that reality to be true enough that he he's going to cling to the old, the kind of the old way. Right. And then Jed says, one thing's for sure, none of us can ever go home ever again. Again, kind of being the leader, kind of being the center focus of the group in that this is where we're at. And things have changed, and that's the way it is, you know? Right. If there were to be someone from these group of characters that would speak directly to the audience, it's Jet. Right. To say, this is where all of us are in this story, and that it's at this moment, everything has changed, 
and we can no longer be the people who we were. Yeah. So then this is where Matt, being a bit of the chauvinist that he is, you know, all the thinking that now he's mature and this is what mature men do, hands his dirty dishes over to uh, Erica. And that's when she's like, oh, no, F you, and throws them down. He's like, we ain't ever washing your dishes again. We're just as good as any of you. Yeah. He said he makes a comment, you know, make yourself useful. Right. And she she gives him this look <laughs> like, you know. Die. <laughs> Die, mother. <laughs> no. So then Maddie comes, shoots back at her and goes, what's up, your... <laughs> And yeah. <laughs> that's when she really goes off the handle and starts punching him. <laughs> saying, don't ever say that again. Yeah. And if you say that again, I will kill, kill you. you. And she says it with like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and then, <laughs> if you say it again, I will kill you. <laughs> and Jed looks like he wanted to say something. He goes, mm, no, no, no. I'm going to let her go. because She looks really pissed off. <laughs> and, you know, Matt's sitting there bewildered because, like, the first part of it is like, okay, fine, whatever. But, you know, he's a little, okay, I got, you know, I didn't, I got put back from where I was coming from. Fine, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then that second part, he is like, really? Like, where in the F did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> what did I do? And Tony comes in and says, what you said was wrong. So there's a lot yeah. of implication in, in there, knowing that yeah. from before that uh, the two girls were saved by the last people that our heroes saw before making it back to the forest, that uh, the Russians almost had their way with these girls. So there was a lot of implication there, some really terrible things. <laughs> or did have their way with them. We, we don't know. And what you see through the rest of the movie is every time they have an interaction with any of the girls have an interaction with the Russians that not that's not at gunpoint. <laughs> it's pretty ter- They're pretty terrified. <laughs> it's very uh, Russian aggressive, you know, to the girl um, in a sexual way. And both portions of the scene, both the the dishwash thing, and then the the comment and that spinning up. It's not Tony. That's Erica spinning up Erica as much as it does. Kind of. Underlies the fact that they were they were probably mistreated in some manner mm-hmm. and in probably both of those ways. You talk about forced labor and then you know call it molestation. The terrible <laughs> things that happen to women in war. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you definitely get the feeling that that's happened. It it also Tony's character doesn't develop a whole lot through the course of the film, but Erica's does. And this sort of sets her like starting point. Like before this point, we really haven't had much from those two characters beyond, you know, the incident that we talked about just before. And then now, like before that, they were just sort of there. And so you get your first kind of look into their characters. And it sets a very interesting stage for Erica. Like she's insanely angry and touchy and and definitely like, you know, something terrible happened to her and she's got PTSD about it. Mm-hmm. Again, fantastic scene. Like <laughs> all of that would probably be entirely real in a war, in a you know war torn situation, especially in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Jed's leadership through it, effectively not letting the situation handle itself. Just another expert scene. <laughs> <laughs> so then Matt takes the dishes, throws like sand, throws dirt on them, and then chucks them behind him. <laughs> Because <laughs> that's one way of cleaning is just, you just you know sand clean it, sandblast it, and then shake off the sand. I mean, when you don't want to waste water, yeah, because of coarseness of the sand or the dirt. You can take a bath that way if you want. <laughs> it's, about, it's about as awful as you can get, but yeah, you can right? do it. <laughs> <laughs> Steel wool and Brillo pads. <laughs> mm-hmm. We jump into the next scene, which is uh, presumably the next day, and we have our uh, Cuban colonel. 
and, or at least a South American, Central American colonel. Yeah, he was either, I think he was Nicaraguan. We eventually figured out he's Nicaraguan. Okay. Yeah. Cause the guy next to him, the captain, his title is the Nicaraguan captain. So <laughs> the bad guys, the Hispanic bad guys, mm-hmm. they're walking by and they take a look at the dead bodies of the three guys that our heroes just killed. And this is your introduction to the colonel's kind of right hand man. Right. Who's in several scenes. So this is the first time you get to see him. And it's kind of interesting because he starts giving them instructions and the instructions are basically like they're not ones that you would give to like a revolutionary force they're your pretty practical you know safety protocols which is no longer anybody's going out in groups of less than four or whatever and then no more like out at night and you know it's the stuff that if you had an insurgent guerrilla force that you were worried about that's the kind of stuff you would do Mm -hmm. and i'd let them know that that section of the country is now active with rebels and whatnot start intensifying interrogations including the mayor you know i'm sick of his pleasantries so then things start getting intense so then the next scene we're in what we presume to be i guess the mayor's office that these guys have overtaken and uh they start talking about you know well the only people missing that they know of are these kids Mm -hmm. (laughs) the mayor's like no 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 no. my son daryl he couldn't hurt anybody you know (laughs) he couldn't hurt you know fly you know now maybe some of the other families blah 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 The colonel goes, from according to his school records, he's part of this paramilitary unit called Eagle Scouts. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, then, yep. and that he's a prominent student student leader. <laughs> yeah, if you were coming from the outside, the whole scouting organization would kind of strike you as a, a paramilitary organization, you know, just because it's, you know, wilderness training. The mayor shoots back, oh, no, that's not military, not military. <laughs> <laughs> that would be ROTC. <laughs> yeah, and he says, you know, if my son's out there, you know, he's just hungry and scared and he wouldn't trouble anybody. Which, I mean, that's exactly where they were like he's not lying right like, he is he is describing what they were doing before that incident well yeah and daryl wasn't anywhere in well maybe i think he was on the other side with robert he hid behind a tree along with robert but robert turned around and shot the guy right but he certainly wasn't as prominent in all that as like say everybody else no i don't think he had a weapon so that was part of it you know the guy asks, you know well who would cause that kind of trouble and, and the mayor seeing the trap that he's in <laughs> tries to kind of sidestep and goes well let's just say it runs in some of the families and that's when the colonel starts making fun of him like oh this community is you know uh, is really fortunate to have a shepherd like this guy <laughs> yeah say so like oh you, you know you don't know who's causing trouble here <laughs> you're a real good leader <laughs> And nervous wise, the mayor's like, oh, I just want to help you guys out, you know, so that way nobody gets hurt. And I was like, yeah, get out. It's okay. You get done. <laughs> We're done. Yeah, you're done. Leave, <laughs> leave, leave your office. That's now my office where we will smoke our Cuban cigars <laughs> and sit in our nice fancy armchairs. <laughs> we go to the next scene, which again, presumably is yet another day forward. Uh, we see one of our car- one of our heroes in what's called a ghillie suit. Basically, it's the suit that you just cover with foliage of whatever is around to hide yourself when you're like trying to crawl through tall weeds, tall grass, things like that. So that way you can't be seen. And you put it on everything. You put it on the shirt, the hat, <laughs> you know, your shoes, whatever it is. So that way when you're crawling, all it looks like is the grass in, in the wind. <laughs> and then we see a guy digging 
it's a grave. There's no other way to put it. He's digging a hole. It's a grave because of the way and the size. And it's Aardvark's father, you know, the guy who <laughs> who was yelling for his kid to save him rather than run away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just I laugh at that a little bit because he was so when you watch it, he was so desperate for his son to save him. Like he was going to be disappointed if his son didn't save him instead of like, get the hell out of here. <laughs> GTFO, man. GTFO. <laughs> <laughs> so he digs the hole and he's helped out of it and he's lined up with a bunch of other people. One of them happens to be Jed and Matt's father. And these are just a bunch of prisoners lined up and you can probably guess what's going to happen here. Yeah. <laughs> and there's quite a lot of people for just, you know, a mass execution because they got two tanks, an APC, and about 20 guys standing around. Oh, and then the graves they were digging were for the Russians that were killed, the bad guys that were killed up on mountain the first kills that our heroes made yeah and they're doing a one two three yeah 21 gun salute something like that oh there's some nuns i just saw that there's some nuns in there yeah in the crowd yeah, yeah. <laughs> who would have thought a, a nunnery was was in you know the middle of colorado <laughs> you'd be surprised like there's they're randomly everywhere and there's always like two to three so and you, occasionally you run into like the big convents that have like 30 or 40 or whatever but they're like a, there's a lot of little and a lot of time they're from a bigger convent, but they're sent on mission somewhere. And so there's like two or three of them living in a city teaching school or helping out with something. It's very interesting. They're they're everywhere. <laughs> you would not expect it, but they are everywhere. And so Maddie's watching this whole thing and they got these guys lined up facing away from all the uh, the soldiers and whatnot towards. Oh, no. They, now they had them turn around with a big dirt pile behind them. All of a sudden, one of the guys starts singing America the Beautiful. Because <laughs> everybody in the scene knows what's about to happen, except possibly the mayor. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Manny's watching on, and his father is just there stoic. Doesn't say a word, doesn't chime in. And the colonel gives the sign, and they're all just gunned down. They're gunned down with machine guns from the vehicles. Not like they didn't but, yeah. even have the decency to, you know, just use like you know AKs. A firing no, squad, right? Just the overkill, to overkill. Ridiculous level. <laughs> people don't do this in real life. Mass <laughs> killing people. I mean, they do. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it's and it's gruesome. Everybody screams. The mayor looks like he's going to get sick. <laughs> like he's going to throw up. Like I do. Like how did you not see this coming? <laughs> and Maddie, to his credit. It just looks shocked. He doesn't scream. He doesn't cry. He doesn't, you know, bury his head. He just stunned. That's it. But as soon as all that happens, we go to the nighttime back to our hero's camp. And that's when Jed starts yelling at not to cry. And he grabs Danny, shakes him, puts him on, and goes, don't cry ever again. Never in your life. Don't ever cry for the rest of your life. He's echoing the same same things his father told him when they were at the the camp. And, you know, don't, you know, cry now. And, and you know, Jed and Matt were crying when they saw their father in that instance. And, and their father said, okay, that's enough. You know, no more crying for your mother or for me. You know, and then the avenge me thing. And that's, you know, Matt's crying. And he still hugs him, even though, he you know, he's oh, trying yeah. to get him to stop crying. But he still gives him a big hug, pulls him in. And yeah. And ultimately, he's echoing what his father said because he doesn't know what else to say. Like, there's nothing else he could say or come up with in that instance. Like, he has the only model that was available, which is what his father said, and that's what he's going to say in that instance. The reality is they're both crying, and that's absolutely fine. <laughs> that's what you expect. Mm -hmm. But now both Jed and Matt have stepped into the same place where Robert is. They didn't have a home to go to before, but at least they knew their dad was alive. Now they got nothing. Right. 
And at this point, Daryl says, they're going to kill us, all of us. <laughs> and that's when Robert, and this is like another sign of how, what the direction of Robert's going. Robert goes, uh, why should we be any different? Yeah. As you can see, like Robert's kind of deadpan through this whole thing. He's not really showing emotion. He's just sort of like, okay. You can tell from Robert's position, he knows what he wants to do now. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's pretty sure that Jed and Matt are now on his side in that thought process. They're like, they're probably wanting revenge too. So we may be going to get some. Right. And, you know, the girls both seem on board for it as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> Due to the, you know, previous interactions we've seen from them. And it's then that we, the brothers, have their moment of grief. Yep. Jed's hugging Maddie and telling him, let it turn, let it turn. Robert's on looking, going, yep, I've been there. <laughs> so the next thing that we see is, again, jumping up to the next day, see a Russian tank pulling up to a gas station. There's a core sign out there. So I, I really don't know if this is like the next day when these scenes do this. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll just say it's after the day from when all the stuff happened. <laughs> yeah. It could be a couple of days. Sure. But for all we know, it's the next day. <laughs> could be next day. It could be a week, whatever. We switch from night to day. <laughs> <laughs> you happy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> uh, technically correct. <laughs> the best kind of correct. <laughs> so the Russians pull up to a gas station in a tank. <laughs> There's three of them that you see. And I'm guessing a fourth inside. And so it's two foot soldiers and the officer again. I don't know why in threes they got to be like that. But they pull up to the gas pump like they're going to put regular gas into a tank. <laughs> yeah. This is the most, I believe, button part of this scene is the pulling up to a gas station you can't run on gas. <laughs> like, I don't think there's a tank in the world built to run on gas. Hey, we have tanks that are run on jet fuel now, <laughs> but not gas. <laughs> so, you know, the officer says, take gas and whatever else. Yeah. And Tony comes by in a bicycle with a basket on it. And of course, as soon as she shows up, the foot soldiers start trying to, you know, hit on her and they're grabbing her and trying to, you know. Yeah. Sweet talker. Lester, basically. Yeah. In in pretty much every use of that word. (laughs) Like to detain, harass, take something from, to, you know, sexually assault. All of those get done. Yep. (laughs) But she fights them off and the the officer tells her, leave her alone. Just take her bag. We don't care about her. Right. Just take her stuff, which is sort of like one of the reasons America does so well as an occupying force is because we have something called the second army. When the second army comes in and they give the people stuff like food and rations and water and chocolate bars and medical stuff, like if you take over a place and then you steal and then you have your soldiers steal all the from the people, how in the hell are you not going to suddenly make a whole bunch of gorillas? <laughs> like, like who in the f is going to work with you <laughs> as an invading force? I mean. Like, just the whole thing is about as awful as it as it could be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the rules go out the window. <laughs> yeah. And what's funny, I wouldn't say funny, but what's absurd is like, you know, as Tony's getting away without the basket, you know, the guy's like, oh, hey, you're beautiful. What's wrong with you? Like, really, man? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I can't tell if he's serious or not because, you know. 
<laughs> and then as the guy's like, you know, like, shuck, she got away. There's an, uh, an explosion because the officer took the basket into the tank and it was full of explosives. <laughs> yep. From what we could tell, no one really died in the explosion. He threw it into the tank and I guess everybody was outside. So everyone's just kind of thrown about from the explosion. So then the explosion knocks Tony off her bike and then she just takes off running. Yep. The officer gets angry. What does he decide he's going to do? Get out a pocket knife and chase her down. Like, yeah, you got, yeah, you got guns around here. You think a switchblade is the optimal thing to do. <laughs> and, that, and that occurred to me. The reality is the two, the two, the two tank uh, personnel guys probably don't have firearms. But the officer would. He would have a pistol. So I think this is engendering a, hey, I'm pissed off and I want this to be personal kind of a thing. Because otherwise, you know, if they were really gunning for her, they would have he would have pulled his pistol out and started shooting at her. Right. <laughs> not that necessarily he would have hit her because being a tank officer, he's probably not a great shot. Right. <laughs> you don't have to have accuracy when you got artillery. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like the, And he's not the gunner either. One of the other guys is the gunner. So... <laughs> Whether or not he would have gotten her with a pistol. (laughs) So they go running after her and uh, they're running through a field and it looks completely even. It looks like there's nothing suspicious. And then as they're running, all of a sudden, three of our heroes pop up. Four of our heroes pop up from covered holes and gun down the three Russians. (laughs) Yep. And And so the whole thing is about as perfectly done as you possibly could. Right. Like, as if you were trained to do it. <laughs> right. There's some real question marks about, like, okay, were you just, you know, you picked this spot waiting for a tank to come by and need gas? Like, how did you plan that one out? Like, <laughs> who did you think you'd be shooting? And you were sure that they were going to take, what's her name's basket from her? <laughs> and, like, there's just, there's some uh, some parts of this plan that you're just sort of like, I I feel like you guys got a little bit lucky, <laughs> like, here. But uh, okay, I guess if you you know if you did some scope out work and figured out like okay, you know the Russians use this as a fuel depot and they'll come by and, the, and they steal from everybody. So, <laughs> no. but expertly executed. And I want to give props to the props department <laughs> or the scene the scene department because they did a really excellent job with that hiding like, those holes. Yeah, because like like you know at first when you look at it, you're like damn there's nothing there and then after they pop out you're like oh damn how did I miss that? <laughs> yeah like I didn't see it at all. Like that was that was really impressive. <laughs> and so they just I, I who are the so it's it's Jed, Matt, Robert, who's the fourth person? Ardvark. Ardvark. Okay. So that that is very specifically a revenge. Right. <laughs> this interesting also sets up Tony as the um, the bait. Right. This honestly is a continuation of the first scene uh, up on the mountain where she is like, she's the one that gets discovered and kind of runs away, uh-huh. you know, and then turns and, and fights at the end there. But that seems to be her role in the schemes going forward. She is, she is bait a lot of times. Which, you know, they're preying on the fact that the Russians are big on, you know, the, in this movie, the, the Russian soldiers. Over this. Yeah, they're big on sexual harassment. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, so this is the first time they really do what would be classified as a guerrilla warfare kind of action. Right. right? They set a trap. They killed people on purpose. It wasn't a... Oh, we got discovered and we, we have to fight our way out sort of a thing. This was like a purposeful, had a purpose. And and then they, do they go drop something into the tank and blow it up? Nope. They just go run. Okay. Because they had already blew up the tank. 
which is what got them chasing them. That's right. But the next thing that happens is then we go to a scene where it looks like another mass execution by the Russians on the side of a road. And it's kind of funny because like even one of the guys starts like to spit on the Russians, you know, in defiance. Like no no white guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's gonna be defiant to the end. Yep. But our heroes come in from behind and start gunning down all the people that were outside of the military vehicles. And Jet and Daryl being the uh athletes that they are, threw grenades into the APC <laughs> and blow it up. <laughs> yep, managed to get everybody inside. <laughs> yep, and then everybody else goes fleeing, all of our would-be victims. Yeah. Take off. And this is when it becomes the classic line comes up here, folks. Drum roll. You see Daryl standing at the top of the ridge, holding the AK-47 in his hand. And he yells, Wolverines! Wolverines! (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting to me because this obviously was a reprisal for the destruction of the the tank and the killing of the those three tank personnel, the officer and the two guys working in the tank. So this would have had to have been a coordinated attack. Like they knew following their attack at the gas station that they were then going to have to find out where they were going to shoot these people at and then get to them and set up this ambush. It belies a lot of like, uh, I don't know what you call it, a scouting intelligence gathering on the part of the what are now the Wolverines, right? Right. <laughs> so you, you get kind of two things going on here. Either the, the Russians are operating completely o- completely in the open, and so it's easy, or the Wolverines are pretty good at what they do. Right. Probably both, I'm guessing, <laughs> to some extent. <laughs> so now what we enter in, like, a couple of quick scenes of them doing – the, their beginnings of guerrilla warfare, you know, they, there's a Russian trying to cut the telephone lines and Jed pops up and shoots him with a rifle and Tony and Danny, you know, shooting up an armored vehicle full of troops. <laughs> you know, Erica, again, with the machine gun emplacement. Yep. Danny actually shoots a rocket. Good for Danny. Didn't think you could actually hold on to one of those. <laughs> this is during that same scene? Uh-huh. It's all the same scene right now for this one. Yeah, yeah. Daryl is, like, covered in, like, makeup, you know, like, shooting like he knows what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> Robert dropped grenades from the roof <laughs> on the, the Russians. Well, no, they're not Russians because this guy, in fact, you know, he says clearly, Una Granada! <laughs> mm-hmm. So they're probably the Nicaraguans. <laughs> and you start seeing them spray painting Wolverines all over the place. <laughs> so we moved from sort of the refugee phase of the movie into the guerrilla phase of the movie. Right. So you have kind of the, the Wolverines, you know, they get their start kind of by accident and then they sort of roll from there and then they become heroes because they save all those people from being killed. Who knows what happens to them, like whether or not they go off to free America or not. <laughs> but it's the transition period is kind of that at the mountaintop, that first scene where they kill those guys. And now they're full on gorillas and they have a, you know, they're calling themselves Wolverines based off of their, you know, high school football team. So we've moved into a a very different set of the movie. And then, you know, you see by the time you get to like the third thing, all of them are involved, right? There's not a single one of the people, even Daryl, right? The, The guy who was the most opposition to Jed and in general figured you'd be the most opposition to this sort of activity, especially since theoretically his father is still alive. At least we, we know, or we think his father is still alive. Right. So he's actually got, unlike the rest of them, he has something to lose. (laughs) Whereas the rest of them are more or less, you know, out for revenge or whatever. Right. And so we've moved into kind of the revenge guerrilla stage, but it's also, it's not stupid revenge. It seems to be pretty well coordinated. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Pat and the Fat Man. Remember, we do have a website, patandthefatman.com, and a Patreon. If you feel so inclined to uh, help us pay our editor, we would really appreciate it. Maybe a dollar a show, maybe five. Whatever you can afford, we would uh, gladly take your money and then give it to our editor. (laughs) So thanks again for listening. I'm Pat. I'm the Fat Man. Stay classy. Wolverines! 16 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. One hour for 16 minutes, baby. That's right. Getting your money's worth. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of service you get here at Pat the Fat Man. That's right. Take you three days to watch an hour and a half movie. <laughs> <laughs>